the sky grows dark as the witching hour approaches. Stars wink out of sight and wandering clouds obscure the glow of the moon. The shadows on the side of the road grow darker and the only sound that can be heard is the creak of tree branches and gentle howling of the wind. A superstitious schoolteacher rides slowly through the hollow, whistling in vain to keep his spirits up. The sound of laughing crickets and croaking toads echo menacingly in the darkness. And just as the teacher seems to have overcome all his fears, we hear the deep, horrifying cackle of a vengeful phantom, the ghost of Sleepy Hollow, a spectral bringer of death, the headless horseman. <coughs> Hello everyone and welcome once again to Disney's Demons. If you're listening for the first time, welcome. In this podcast, we examine the mainline Disney films, one per episode, and probe a little deeper to uncover some of the darker elements associated with that film. This might be related to the production process of the film, the themes that inform the narrative, or even just the scary parts of the films themselves, as I'm sure you're all aware this is something Disney films have in spades. We haven't uploaded anything in some time due to prior commitments, but now we are back in full force to once again explore Disney's dark side. We're going to do something a little different today, and we're going to look at one of Disney's many anthology films. This was a staple of Disney's output in the 1940s, due in large part to many animators being drafted into World War II. This in turn made it difficult for the studio to complete a feature-length story, so smaller stories were packaged together in an attempt to keep the lights on. The film we're going to talk about today is the last of said films, released arguably after the need for such practices. This is the 1949 package film, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. And joining me to talk about it is someone I was really happy to get a chance to talk to again. We worked together for a year, teaching English in Japan, and we used to get together every now and then to watch horror movies together, or go to haunted houses that sometimes popped up around like the city we lived in. She's now settled in Vancouver, and she is an aspiring author, and quite possibly the most consistent consumer of the written word I have ever met. My guest today is Saxon Bishop. Saxon! Hello! Steve, hi. You gotta love that faked enthusiasm, don't you? As if we haven't been talking for the last 10 minutes already. <laughs> no, I haven't spoken to you in four, three, four years. <laughs> it's crazy. It's, I can't believe it has actually been that long since we've talked face to face. Obviously, the odd messages every now and then, such as congratulating you on your marriage and that sort of thing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> so for the people listening back home, um, myself and Saxon, we came to Japan at the same time and we both taught English to uh, junior high school uh, children for one year before regrettably Saxon had to go back home and one of the first things I remember you saying to me ever was after we did our self-introduction at the Board of Education in woeful Japanese and I remember saying I quite like horror movies and you just like rushed up to me and just said 
we need to talk about horror later. <laughs> oh, yeah. I get so excited about, like, whenever I hear anybody mention horror, it's like my ears perk up like a dog. I'm like, yeah. oh, we need to talk about this. And and talk about what we did, because uh, I'm sure you remember, we had our little Scare Buds group, which uh, myself, yep. yourself, uh, Tim and Emma, shout out to them as well if they're listening. And, um, yeah, we just got together and watched horror movies once every, what, two, three weeks or so. It was great. Um, we also did, uh, I don't know, do you remember when we had the, uh, that department store haunted house experience thing? Oh yeah. The, like one of those, like we walk through the little maze kind of thing. That, I think that was one of the first things we did as yeah. scare butts. If, if, I rem- yeah. if I remember right, I think, um, because you had to do something like, uh, take, I think it was a coin or a ring or something and you had to hand it to someone near the end but because it was all in Japanese we weren't really clear on what we were supposed to do so I think there was a couple of occasions where we were about to steal something from the shop and like someone had to break the illusion says no 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 (laughs) yeah I think we got stuck in one of the rooms too we thought we needed to find something to progress Hmm. and I think that was when they came in and were like, please keep moving through the maze. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Oh, that was it. Yeah, I remember now. Yeah, there was a point where someone was sticking their hand through a hole, and we were supposed to put something in their hand, and we had no idea that that was the case. We were just thought, they're trying to grab us, so we were just staying away from it, and eventually someone just came and was like, yeah, just do this. Yeah. (laughs) So, Saxon, you read more books than anybody I know. I'm just going to throw that out there. (laughs) How many books have you read this month, in the month of November so far? This month, not too many, just two. But I've read 51 for the year, which is past my goal, so I'm very happy about that. That's amazing. I mean, honestly, I'm I'm blown away because, you know, the older you get, the harder it is to find time just to actually settle down with a good book you just uh, I, I don't know for me personally I just do not have the luxury I'm just too I, I'm not saying it's like you obviously make time for this but like I just want to switch off so I usually play games or watch tv or something oh yeah yeah I do it instead of tv that's there yeah there you how go I do it. <laughs> <laughs> like a proper intellectual <laughs> yeah exactly and so tell me if you don't mind me asking you don't have to answer this is all how is the novel coming because I know you're working on it and you were doing even while you were here in Japan you were making great progress so so the one I was writing in Japan kind of I gave up on but um, I have been writing this past year a fantasy novel and I just finished the first draft last week <gasps> that's so, amazing congratulations yeah thank you, you yeah so I'm excited about it yeah it's it feels good to actually finish writing a book I think that's the hardest part is finishing I think so, so. I've heard that from just other podcasts I listen to with um, writers they often say that that is the biggest struggle and after that the refinement process is usually really enjoyable so yeah I hope you enjoy that part of it anyway (laughs) (laughs) thanks yeah I'm avoiding that for now but (laughs) take a break yeah (laughs) yeah does it have a title um no because I don't like the working title so I won't tell you what that's that is, that's but... fair I think mo- it's <laughs> usually the last soon. thing yeah usually the yeah. last thing unless unless you're uh, you know uh uh J.R. Tolkien or something oh no I know he he changed it as well anyway <laughs> so the reason we're talking about books is because today we are talking about uh the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. uh and Mr. Toad a really weird film in uh, Disney's back catalogue, actually, because uh, this is 
this comes from the era of like the package film where instead of doing a feature length film they would like take an anthology of short tales or in this case two short mini films and just kind of mash them together and it's unusual because uh, it was released again and again and again afterwards, usually as singular films. I actually had uh, The Wind in the Willows on VHS when I was, I don't know, four years old, back when everything was black and white. And um, yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's just like an odd film because the previous package films made a lot of sense because they almost all of them came out during World War II. And that was a notoriously difficult time to get feature films completed because, you know, funding and that kind of thing was all being pushed towards the, the effort rather than the actual uh, making of films. So it's a bit unusual now that four years after the war ended, they made yet another package film. And it's the last one that they ever did until, unless you count Winnie the Pooh, which was in the 70s, but that was kind of a, a unique uh, situation. So this one's... It's a little unusual. We'll talk. We'll talk about like the actual setup of it. But first of all, I wanted to get your thoughts on what do you think first of all on the setup, the fact that they're looking at two literary adaptations, and first of all, the fact that they take one from the English tradition, The Wind in the Willows, and another from hilariously what they call the colonizers in the film. <laughs> I love. I love that bit of the Sarah. Don't forget, over here in the colonies, we've got some great literature pieces too. I know that did not age very well. <laughs> it really didn't. But um, what, what's your impression on that? Like, what, what, why do you feel like that was the approach they took? Do you think it was just coincidence, or how do you feel about it generally as like a framing device? I mean, it is a strange way to to frame the films, and I guess because back then, I don't know, maybe people would have been more familiar with the books and so that's why they kind of chose to frame the movies in that way Hmm. but yeah it's just a very odd way to put it but it it is kind of this like I feel like a lot of films back then did do this Mm. or even in the 90s I feel like this was kind of a trend yeah yeah. of like someone sitting in an armchair and I'm going to tell you a story yes yes um, they pull it off the shelf and then we watch it um Mm. so I guess that's that's kind of the feeling this like cozy feeling it gives you yeah that's that's a good point actually it 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 does have a cozy feeling actually because there is something and I know you definitely will be appreciate this it is very soothing to just go into a library and just like see walls and walls of books and uh I mean even though I haven't bought a book in such a long time, I love going into bookshops and just wandering around. It's just, it's a nice kind of, it's 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 pure escapism. That's the thing. It is pure escapism, and that's why it's it's so great. What do you think about the fact that they have Bing Crosby doing the the voice, uh, or he's the narrator for the Ichabod Crane segment? It's interesting. I know. Well, he was just very famous back then so i guess that's why the choice and mm. I, I i think he sings this song he does yes he sings yeah. all three of the songs in the uh, the book of uh, ichabod yeah but it is an interesting choice for him to present <laughs> yeah well I, I i it makes complete sense to me now if i'm being honest because he was possible i think there was um I, I was looking this up and there was a point before this, around the time the war effort was going on, he was voted the most admired man alive uh, by like some random American poll, and like he he beat out like the Pope in, in this like so everybody loved Bing Crosby at this point, and this is shortly after uh, White Christmas, 
which yeah. was it still is the number one best-selling single of all time which blew my mind I, i'm surprised that hasn't been won out but it does make sense actually because every christmas of course i mean christmas songs are always going to be popular and that one is just like timeless it doesn't age because you know there's no element in it that does age it. it's just very universally loved but the other uh, one, Basil Rathbone, um, I hadn't really heard of him before this. Did, did you, Do you know anything about him? No, no, I had no idea who he was. Yeah, so Basil Rathbone was an interesting choice because he was, I wouldn't go so far as to say he wasn't universally loved. He was certainly well-liked. He was in a lot of uh, Shakespeare plays and he was in the odd horror film. He played... Uh, the, in The Son of Frankenstein, he played the son of Victor Frankenstein. Um, but a lot of the films he was in, he played like morally dubious characters. Like he was usually very ambiguous. Like he was very popular, but also um, tended to lean towards like villainous roles. And it's interesting because this is before the term anti-hero has even been made, but it seems like he was kind of filling that mold. One really interesting fact about him is he was arrested along with the entire cast of a play called, what was it called? Uh, the Captive, which was about a man whose wife leaves him for another woman. And he was arrested, as you can imagine, because this was in 1926, because it was portraying homosexuality as something, you know, quite normalized. And he was furious over his arrest over this because he was a very strong advocate for homosexuality being brought into the public sphere. People should be talking about it, which is quite unheard of in that st uh, stage. So um, he gets bonus points from me right from the start. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I didn't I did not know any of that. But that's that's quite interesting that back then he was so vocal about it and then he's mm. in a or he's being a voice in a disney film which is disney historically isn't very up to the times i guess we can yeah. say <laughs> to to their credit recently they've been doing stellar work but uh yeah even even as, as only 20 years ago or so like yeah they would be a little bit dated in terms of their views but um i think uh i think this wasn't so much of a risk, I think, because obviously, um, Mr. Basil Rathbone, he, he wasn't like he wasn't seen as like this wild card. Generally speaking, mm -hmm. he was a well-respected person, but he, he does have this like backstory and this public persona of not necessarily being the super wholesome person that Bing Crosby would have been. Although it is worth no. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say it is interesting since Bing Crosby is the like Mr. White Christmas guy. And he's introducing the, I guess, horror tale, we could say. Hmm. And then Basil Rothbone is like kind of the opposite. And it's interesting that they were chosen to, to announce yes. their stories. You're right, because it's really, and I'm glad you picked up on that. I find it really interesting because only for the fact of their nationality, I think ideally they would have liked to have switched those two around. Because oh, I see. Yeah, I can see that for sure. <laughs> I because I, I think Bing Crosby would have been a great fit for introducing the Wind in the Willows because this is very much about you know being an upstanding gentleman and all that kind of thing. Whereas ambiguity and moral dubiousness is very much a big theme for uh, the Headless Horseman. But obviously, this didn't work because of course Basil Rathbone was English, Bing Crosby being American. They were like, well, no, we'll just do it this way. It's it's a shame it just didn't work out that way. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So before we go into the actual mini films themselves, I do have one or two questions for you, Saxon, so viewer, our listeners can get an idea for the kind of person you are. First of all, 
Was your household a Disney household when you were growing up? Did you watch a lot of Disney movies? I did, but I I don't really feel like we were a Disney household, but we were like a children's film household. Okay. So I remember not Disney films weren't my favorite, but they were on the rotation of VHSs. Okay. <laughs> what 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 was your favorite film though, if you don't mind me asking? Um I loved Anastasia uh... as a kid and um the prince of egypt i don't know if that's popular everywhere that that's a weird one actually i yeah <laughs> i think it has a really strong fan base people who like it love it i yeah i was kind of ambiguous towards it. i saw that in the cinema actually believe oh. it or not and um yeah i remember at the time thinking this is fine but uh while I was here, actually, our mutual friend, Brie, she actually uh, used to play the Prince of Egypt soundtrack again and again. So, like, a lot of the songs got stuck in my head while I was here. Oh, the songs are so good in that movie. <laughs> yeah, what was the, there was one I really like, uh, You're Playing With The Big Boys Now. That was my favourite one. Oh, that's a great one, yeah. Okay, so... It was in the Disney uh, films were in your rotation, but maybe not like a huge uh, part of like your actual upbringing per se. Yeah. But horror. Now, I know you like horror. So please tell me, like, wh when was the first horror film you watched and what was it? Um, so I actually started watching horror later, like in probably high school, because mm. my mother was really against it. Mm. And... Well, she, she thought I'd be scared, really. And sure. so she, anytime I wanted to watch a horror movie or a friend invited me over to watch a horror movie on, at like a sleepover, my mom would say, absolutely not. You're not watching <laughs> any of that. Um, but I was always curious. So whenever we went to like the movie store or whatever, I was like always in the horror section, checking them out, but I was never allowed to watch any. Yeah, so then I think in high school, probably when I was like maybe 15, I watched my first horror movie when my mom couldn't really tell me no. <laughs> and I think probably Paranormal Activity wow, really? was my first one. Yeah, I, I remember watching that one. What a great movie to like kick off your horror obsession. <laughs> yeah, and then as soon as I watched it, I was like, okay, next weekend I've got to watch another one. I've got to like get through all of these. <laughs> nice. God, that, that almost perfectly mirrors my own experience as well, because I had that thing that so many kids do where I'd watch a movie that wasn't even a horror movie. It would just have a scary moment in it and I'd be awake for like, you know, nights on end. And obviously my parents thought, well, he can't handle horror at all. So they refused, flat out refused. And like you, I was obsessed with horror. I was always in the shop watching, looking for VHS covers like these are amazing. But I was never allowed to rent them until eventually one Halloween when I think I was I think I was 14, 15, around the same age, um, I was allowed to rent one horror movie, which was Critters, incidentally, which is a great movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, no, so like, and obviously you became obsessed, and then, uh, God, what, how many horror movies did we watch while we were here? Uh, I don't know. Oh, gosh, it must have been like at least 10 or more. So many, like, um, I, I remember in particular, one of the best ones was when myself and yourself, we went to... Uh, uh, Suspiria, the remake of Suspiria in the cinema. Oh yes, that yeah. was because I, <laughs> I remember because you you showed that you were actually like much better at watching this kind of stuff than I was because the scene where that one girl is being possessed and basically forced to dance and all her bones are contorting, and I was yeah. just squirming in my seat and you were just having a great time. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm always like deadpan just watching. 
I'm, I never have a reaction. How are you okay with this? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think we definitely seem to have similar attitudes towards horror anyway. Very, very similar upbringings. Um, and I, now I was hardcore Disney kid, hardcore Disney kid, black leather jacket with <laughs> Mickey Mouse on the back in studs, very much so. But yeah, very, very similar in terms of horror. One last thing before I go into the story of The Wind in the Willows, which is the first film on the list. This was originally going to be packaged with three films. And the third film, really interesting, was actually going to be The Gremlins, the story written by Roald Dahl. So oh, interesting. Yeah, and I I would love to see that. I think I'm gonna to have to check this now, but I think Disney have since made an ad- adaptation of the Gremlins. I did not know this. Yeah, most people will know uh, Gremlins in their 1980s Joe Dante uh, Joe Dante iteration, uh, very much a horror movie thing. But originally, the book was written by Roald Dahl, and it was a children's book, and it was kind of. Um, if you've seen that Simpsons episode where Bart is on the bus and there's a gremlin like taking the bus apart, it's very much that kind of story. So it's about like some World War II pilot in his plane and these little mischievous little monsters are taking the plane apart while he's flying. I don't think that they have... Yeah, I don't I don't think they've really uh, made a film a little short about it. I think it's always been like maybe little cartoons and they haven't officially been called Gremlins. So, yeah, I don't think there's anything official, but I would have loved to have seen that. I think that would have been great. Yeah, I, I definitely would have probably enjoyed it more than some of the ones we're going to speak about today. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I well, we'll talk about it when, when we get into it. But um, first, we'll talk a little bit about The Wind in the Willows. If you were asked to choose the most fabulous character in English literature, who would it be? Robin Hood? King Arthur? Becky Sharp? Sherlock Holmes? Oliver Twist, perhaps? Well, any one of them would be an excellent choice. Still, for the most fabulous character of all, I would nominate a toad. J. So this is the first film in the anthology and one a little bugbear I have about this this drives me nuts when I was researching it the fact that it's called the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Crane but then the actual order of the films is the opposite it's a very small thing and it just drove me mad while I was researching it. it's like why are you doing this why don't you call it the adventures of Mr. Toad and Mr. Ichabod but anyway so the wind in the willows is an adaptation of obviously, The Wind in the Willows, uh, which was written in 1908. Okay, very, very early book. So this short film actually adapts it in a way to make it very, very coherent, because the book itself is very uh, mishmashy, very heavy on themes, and like there isn't really much of a thorough line. They do have the central plot that's in this movie in it, but it isn't quite the focus. It's more about the atmosphere of the riverside and that kind of thing. And there's a lot more myth and, uh, you know, ethereal elements to it. But the, the story that we have here, it very much focuses on Mr. Toad himself and his his tendency to kind of submit to fads. And when he is submitting to a fad, he kind of goes into a sort of mania and can't really control himself. In the uh, book itself, he is infatuated by motor cars. And the way this uh, ultimately transpires is he is accused of stealing a motor car. While he's in court, he explains that he didn't do this, that he actually traded Toad Hall, his uh, estate, for a motor car, which nobody seems to believe. And the witness that he produces lies on the stand and tells him, no, he actually tried to sell me a motor car. 
this puts Toad in prison, which he eventually escapes. And then at the very end, he comes back to his friends, Ratty, Mole, and Badger. And together they all infiltrate Toad Hall, steal the deed, which proves he's innocent. And he is once again, he's proven innocent at the end. And it's implied that he's going to be, you know, an upstanding character. He's not going to submit to fads anymore. But then we get the last shot of the film is him in a right flyer, an airplane, kind of crashing through the chimney of Toad Hall and going off again. And that's basically the plot. So... Saxon, you implied now that you didn't seem to like this very much, so I'm intrigued because I thought I wasn't going to like it, but I actually did in the end. But what are your thoughts? Tell me, please. I I thought, so I also wasn't sure if I would like this one, and I also wondered if I had seen it before, mm. because I could not remember. Um, I don't think I've seen Mr. Toad before. I've definitely seen the Ichabod Crane story. But it was just so strange to me. I guess it's strange for a Disney film. Right. There's something about it that feels much more like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Yes. I don't know if it's like the plot or the way it's animated, but it, it didn't feel Disney to me. And I think that's why I found it so odd. I know what you mean, actually, and I think a big part of that is the character of Toad himself, who isn't, he doesn't fit into the traditional mold of a Disney character. He very much has the air of like a Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck kind of chaotic person, because that's the thing, a lot of uh, Disney movies, they usually are kind of rooted in order, whereas uh, Looney Tunes are, as the name implies, very wacky and chaotic, and Mr. Toad very much falls into that second category. He's an interesting character in this story because it's very much about, you know, your reputation, the way you are seen in society and how he is going against the grain and people have issues with that. Becoming a menace to society. You won't think of yourself. Think of poor old yeah, for sure. I just, I, I guess, yeah, he is, he's not the most likable character, which is fine, but it's strange in a Disney film, I guess, for him to be the main character it's yeah it's interesting actually him uh his likability is something that is really called into question in the book as well because in the intro of this film and in the book itself he's described as someone who despite all his misdemeanors he's still perceived as a very likable character everyone seems to really love him despite the fact he's constantly you know very smug or he uh he gets carried away with these things but everybody still seems to like him i would suspect this might not have aged well. I think that might be a big part of the problem here because he's kind of a different, difficult character to get a handle on. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, as, speaking of aging well, in the because since you mentioned the intro to Mister Toad, hmm. there was uh, they show him doing quite a few different things, and then there's this image of him with a rifle yes. and he has slain a tiger or a lion or something. I guess to show that he's some sort of worldly, adventurous man, but it was so that odd, I guess. But I guess it makes sense because of the, the time, and mm -hmm. that wouldn't have been seen as such a strange thing. But looking at it this year, it's a bit shocking, I yes, guess. Yes, yes, you're right, actually. Um, yeah, a lot of the characters, they do kind of come across this way, that they are very much dated stereotypes that don't translate well into modern day uh uh, archetypes uh, in particular one that i always had issues with was uh, ratty who just seems like one of the worst characters like i mean he is described as being 
quite stuffy but kind-hearted but you just you're looking at him and you're just thinking like this is the kind of person i would hate to be stuck in a lift with he just looks like the oh, most for sure. dull boring pain in the arse person to ha- ever have to talk to and it's it's funny because this was kind of the perception of an upstanding gentleman at the time in like uh, the 1940s because you know it was all about that like uh, can doativeness and like you know we're all sticking together and like let's let's be proper gentlemen sorry toad but you owe a debt to society and you've got to pay and i hate that <laughs> <laughs> But um, the other characters, at least, Angus and Molly, I think they have a pretty good time of it. Angus in particular, I really like because, and again, this might be because, whereas the other characters are English, it might be because he's Scottish. I just like that a little bit more. There's a more of a, a dialogue between the Irish and the Scottish always. But he just seems like, you know, a hard, a put upon kind of guy, generally quite kind, but always a little bit like uh, harassed and, you know, just he's very likable presence. I definitely agree. I feel he, I felt that he actually cared about Mr. Toad, mm. whereas particularly Ratty just seems like we have to just deal with Mr. Toad because he's got his mania and it's annoying <laughs> and we just need to make him an upstanding man again, kind mm. of like, yeah, not really caring, but more about the appearance of their friend group. He definitely strikes me as the kind of person who likes the sound of his own voice in that guy. For sure. <laughs> yeah. And Molly, he's a bit of a nothing character in my opinion. Like he's he's definitely oh, I the... loved him. Really? Oh, that's interesting. He's so endearing. Yeah. He was the only <laughs> one I liked. <laughs> it's um no, it's interesting you say that because for me personally, I remember when I was a kid I liked him a lot. And I think he is kind of there as kind of a gateway for younger audiences because he is very childlike in everything he does. And, you know, because the whole bit where uh, Toad is, where they've stopped Mr. Toad on the road and Toad is saying, come with me and I'll bring you on adventures and that kind of thing. And Molly is immediately tempted. He's like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And he starts climbing up on the wheel and he's like, no, have you completely forgotten what we're here for? God damn it, Toad. Or Molly. But yeah, no, he's he's definitely like the kindest and most kind-hearted character in it. And I definitely think that was there for a gateway for younger audiences. Um, again, I think it's it's the very Englishness of him that again irks me a little bit. <laughs> There's the bit at the very start, like the way the entire film opens is he's late for tea and you can just see he's like, oh, this is a terrible habit that you have, being late for tea. And again, it's so British and I just hate it so much. It goes against the grain to everything like that I stand for as an Irishman where, you know, our general meetup time is four-ish. And, you know, it, it could be it could be any time between, you know, 301 to uh 459. You know, any time whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> So I think we should talk a little bit about the general themes in this one, because my takeaway from this, correct me if you didn't get this at all, but my general takeaway from this was the way you are seen in society. And in terms of, you know, some of the darker sides of this, the kind of typically in a Disney movie, like the villain or uh, the central um antagonistic force is usually the scary side of disney and i was trying to look for that in this and the scary side per se was you know the idea that you are not an upstanding gentleman the idea that you are not conforming to the way society wants you to conform and it's particularly interesting here because mr toad 
doesn't really do that. He doesn't really learn a lesson. He threatens to learn this lesson and become an upstanding gentleman twice in the film. But both times he gets tempted back into being, you know, this roguish character who goes around. And the film seems to be a bit okay with that by the end of it. So it confused me a little what it was trying to say. But what are your thoughts on that? I definitely agree. I was confused at the end what I was supposed to, I guess, learn or get out of the story. Mm. And there are, I, I don't know, there's there's some troubling things in the story about Toad not conforming, especially with what they call mania <laughs> and um, that being such a, I guess, a problem, mm. even though it's something that bring, seems to bring him joy. Mm-hmm. is something I, I found very strange and I, I had trouble with in the film, I guess, that especially the the part where he gets the motor car mania mm-hmm. and they lock him up in his room. Yes! To, because they just, that's supposed to cure him. I, I don't know really what the purpose of that is. That blew me away because it's something I, I'd never really thought of before because, again, I, I'd watched this since I was about three or four years old. So, like, it was when you've been watching something for that long you don't really think critically about like the storyline and i kind of thought oh the main like scary pa- scary parts in virtual commas in this are going to be the bits of the weasels at the end or the bits where uh, toad is showing his mania that's going to be the bit and to be fair those bits are somewhat unsettling but the idea of your friends against your will locking you in your own house because they think you're not like you know conform and like this is the thing it's it's all Toad's fortune. It's all Toad's money. Like, everything he's doing, he is personally responsible for. But they're stepping in as, like, you know, good friends to stop him, save him from himself. And at the time, I'm sure that was supposed to be, you know, a very upstanding thing to do. But in reality, it's really disturbing. Like, they're really putting him, making him a prisoner in his own home against his will for no other reason than they think he's acting out. Rat and Mole had no choice. There was only one thing to do. Lock the poor chap in his chambers and keep him there until the poison worked out of his system. Hold it, Moley! That's better. And you can't escape, you know. Simply no use trying. Yeah, for sure. And I, I don't know if I'm skipping ahead, but since you mentioned prison yes. and the disturbing parts of this movie, the the prison scene is so it it suddenly the this like kind of lighthearted, silly movie takes this dark turn where he's he has this kind of dark night of the soul almost in his prison cell (laughs) like crying and thinking he needs to just be like everybody else yeah and again like it's it's a really weird moment because in almost any other film this would be the point as you said the dark night of the soul where someone would be reborn as a new and better person but the film flat out refuses to do that instead like A new character who was introduced in the film, he's not in the book, Cyril Proudbottom, great name, who's a very, he's a cockney horse. It's just great. I love that. But um, he sneaks into the prison cell and brings him a disguise. And just to emphasize the fact that Toad has not learned his lesson here, we have this brief moment where the narrator um, is saying like, oh, he's got a new mania. He's been taking up with the fad of escaping prison when he was wrongfully imprisoned. <laughs> Like, they're making it sound bad that he's trying to clear his name. And he's coming 
Alas, for good intentions, Toad was incurable. One whispered word, and all his high resolve vanished in the mad whirl of this new adventure, this new mania, escape! Toad escape! Yeah, which is, I guess, because that's not what you should do as an upstanding gentleman, but it it's it is kind of the right thing to do yeah it's it's so bizarre because later in the film it's it's made really clear that oh yeah we all misjudged you because you were telling the truth all the time so clearly this was the way to go but at that moment in the film it really seems to be emphasizing that like oh he's a maniac trying to get out of prison from like you know being wrongfully in prison why what are you trying to say here um it's very mixed the message that this film is trying to get across is extremely mixed and I don't know if I like that or not. Genuinely, I don't know if I like that because on the one hand, I it's, it's a kid's film uh, first and foremost. So I think the message probably should be straightforward, but I also like when you have to grapple with the message a little bit, when you really have to struggle and say, what is it trying to say? And I guess that's why we're here. Yeah, for sure. And it is interesting that they're, giving that to children to mm. grapple with the the meaning of the film because usually or especially old disney movies are very this is the lesson you're learning children and this one is more should you be like toad should you conform is what toad's doing okay like we don't know yeah it's it's so weird because if this film was brought out today like i think Toad would be portrayed in a much more likable manner because he's a free spirit, basically. And when you get right down to it, if he is, if you consider him being responsible for his own actions, which is probably how it would be depicted if it was released today, there's no real issue. He's just like someone who's going about his way, going about things the way he likes, and he would probably be seen as a real hero for like you know standing uh, outside of the cultural norm and just being himself. You know his his arc is not too dissimilar from like Elsa from Frozen. He's just like literally just you know being himself, but other people don't understand him. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting that in Frozen they make that very clear that. Mm. Elsa being misunderstood is a problem. Right. But here it's it's not clear at all. <laughs> Sensibilities are very different at this moment in time because this again like 1949 this is just after the war when the strong message being sent out from both the Americas and from uh England was you know we have to stand together as a nation. So if you're like not one of us you're against us almost. So I think that's why it's depicted as such a negative thing for him. Now, obviously, they do make this easier to understand in a film context by the fact that he's just breaking tons of shit, you know. And I <laughs> and I think I think that's kind of the key message that kids watching this would probably take away, rather than standing out from the norm, you know, and being your own person. They're going to see Mr. Toad as a guy who goes around breaking lots of shit, and you probably shouldn't go around breaking lots of shit. So that's true. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the takeaway I think most. Should children would have from this but i think uh the way the horror element i i always hesitate using that because i feel like i've shoehorned this into a lot of disney movies but you know it's it's for the fun of it i think the horror element in this is a large part his mania and you can tell from the music they play the fact that his eyes like change color it's something i always find really unsettling in disney movies when they do that thing with mania we talked about this yeah the the bullet eye yes the twirling yeah yeah we talked about this in the previous peter pan episode as well with the the chief when 
he was glaring at the Lost Boys. His eyes do this thing where circles are going around. It's a lot more um, noticeable in this because like they close right in and they just see like him completely losing his mind. So mania is something that is really focused on here and very much a negative because every time mania takes hold, with the exception of the prison, actually... I've just realized now what I was about to say is quite wrong. I was going to say every time the mania takes hold, something bad happens. But actually, when the mania takes hold from the prison break scene, he gets out of prison. So it's, yeah, it's it's they're trying to depict it as bad, but it's not bad. Although in the prison scene afterwards, I would argue is the, if we're going to choose a horror moment, mm. or for me anyway, was a horror moment, is... When he falls in the water. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> and his, uh, he's got a, a weight attached to his foot. Mm, the ball and chain. Still in, the ball and chain, yeah. And he gets pulled to the bottom. And I guess because he's a toad, he, he doesn't drown. But there's this odd scene where his fingers are just coming out of the water. Yes. And he can't grab this branch that's just out of reach. And it's almost like someone drowning. And it's it's a, a little frightening. It is. It is. disturbing. And this is one of the most powerful horror moments in the entire thing and just very very small side note just because this metaphor is used so often do you think like the ball and chain represents the possibility of him getting married and like he's just trying to struggle against it <laughs> i mean i guess you could read that into it but i don't think that's what they were going for are, are you a ball and chain for your husband <laughs> no i am not a ball and chain <laughs> But no, you are right because it's it's one of these moments that it comes out of nowhere almost. Again, I have to wonder like what was the point of this being here because when I watched this as a kid, that was a moment that always made me uncomfortable, a little bit scared because I'm like, oh no, Toad's going to drown. And obviously he doesn't drown because, you know, he's a Toad, he can breathe in the water. And we know immediately after this, there's a scene where he arrives at Ratty and Molly's house. It's never explained how he gets there. That's something that I always been like, they never, sh and this is the thing, I don't know why it's there because they don't show the resolution of it. They just show, hey, he's drowning. And the fact that um, that bit where he's trying to grab the branch is really disturbing because- It is, yeah. It's suddenly, amidst all this kind of silliness, you know, they, he and the horse, like, what was it, Cyril or something? Cyril Proud Bottom. Um, they, they dress up, like, in these dress in these pink dresses to escape prison, and then suddenly he's drowning and we have this horrible scene. It's just so, I guess, jarring mm. amidst all the silliness we've been watching. Yeah, so just to give um, listeners a little bit of context. So, as I said, there's all these very funny moments. Weirdly contrasted, I would argue, with the backdrop. The, the actual prison escape is one of the darkest bits. Like that, this entire segment, from the moment he breaks out of prison until we get to Ratty and Molly's house, is probably the darkest section of the film. The actual backdrop of uh, London itself, which he, which is where he is being held prisoner, it's really darkly drawn. There's a lot of blacks and reds, which traditionally have always been a kind of symbol for like you know bad evil that sort of thing but despite that the actual shenanigans he gets up to are very comic like the bit where he's on the train and like he's literally using his finger and pretending to shoot at the cops who are like uh, facing he's going bang 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 and i was like are you kidding me like what is going on here bang 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 and again it's darkly lit this is what really surprised me about this bit because again my feelings are mixed here. It's very lighthearted in tone, but the way it's depicted 
is very dark very very dark but anyway the drowning segment i don't know why it's there they don't show a resolution it's not like a punishment for anything he's done unless we consider him escaping from prison which he was wrongly imprisoned into as you know something he needs to endure possibly but he i guess the only thing i can think of for why this is there is toad has a moment where he throws himself off the train he kind of sees okay i can get away from these guys by throwing myself off the train and I, even as I'm saying it, I don't really believe it. I guess you could say that this is something that a normal, upstanding citizen wouldn't do. Like, it's it's a, it's a radical, crazy notion, and they're kind of saying away, kind of trying to imply that you will be punished for doing this. But it's just so blatantly obvious, I don't know why it's there. Like, why would you say that? And for, sorry, I did go on a little bit of a tangent there, but for our listeners, the actual drowning scene, he throws himself into the water using the ball and chain as kind of using momentum. He's in the water and he's laughing at the cops who have been chasing him. They obviously don't know he's down there and he's laughing, laughing, laughing. Suddenly a fish comes up and starts laughing alongside him. Kind of a funny moment. And that's when Toad realizes, oh, wait, I'm underwater. It's like, <gasps> so again, the tone shifts completely as soon as he realizes that. He's trying to start swimming, trying to swim out of the water and we cut to above the water. So all you can see are his hands and he's grabbing at a tree branch. He grabs a really small tree branch that obviously can't support his weight. It breaks off and we cut back down to the water again. We just see him going like, oh no, I can't reach it. He starts pulling at the ball and chain. He can't get it out of the dirt. It's stuck in the dirt, so he can't get it out. And he's just constantly doing that and it cuts again to above and we see his hands reaching above the water, but obviously he can't get his head above water. Everything about this screams, this is a drowning scene and it's horrible. Once more, J. Thaddeus too had the last laugh. Yeah, there's nothing he can do to get out of there. There, and it doesn't show any kind of hope or any, you know, oh maybe he could grab this or that. It's just there's nothing he can do in this mm. instance, which makes it so, I, I don't know, like nerve wracking. Yeah, because it, it ends. It doesn't even end with any kind of resolution. It literally the last thing we see are the hands coming out of the water, and then the camera just starts panning away towards Ratty and Mole's house, and it just cuts to that. And it's like, why was that there? I don't understand this at all. <laughs> yeah, it's very strange, especially since it cuts to this cute little cozy Christmas dinner scene between Ratty and Moe. Yeah, I guess, um, again, it's another possi possible answer is in the book, the section from when Toad escapes from prison to actually reaching Ratty and Mole's place is a lot longer. There's about two chapters, maybe three. Like he goes on the train. He does a bit where he's on like a boat with, in the book is described as a hilariously fat woman. Very problematic that. All these little strange bits. So maybe there's trying to emphasize like the hardship that he has to go through before he gets back to his friends. Oh, I can see that. I mean, we get the chase if if we consider the whole prison escape to be getting back to his friends in as far as the film's concerned then we have the the train chase and then the near drowning mm. so i could see that that's kind of their way of trying to show 
his struggles to get back to them, but it is, I agree, a very bizarre section. I think if, if I was to kind of settle on something or reasoning behind, I think it's literally just for narrative reasons. I don't think there's anything thematically being said here because the next scene, as you say, it's like a very warm scene and we get that moment where Toad knocks on the door and he basically just collapses. And I guess we need a reason for him to collapse. Like it can't just be like, the previous scene was him going, yay, bang, bang, bang. And then he collapses because like, you'd be wondering why. Like, I mean, he was feeling great a moment ago. So I guess the reasoning behind him almost drowning is they have to show him worse for wear when he arrives at Ratty and Mole's house. I guess. But do we need to go so dark with it? Yeah, that's, that's my question for Disney. <laughs> that is the question. But this is the thing. They're not un- Disney are not unknown for slipping really dark things in there for like almost no reason like it's it's kind of part of the reason we do this because i think some of the writers and animators they just like slipping this stuff in there because they just have that kind of personality like for example i must see maybe you picked up on this maybe you didn't there are a lot of bits in this where we see paper headlines like newspaper headlines oh yeah yeah so i pause these moments to try and read some of the other stories the newspaper stories that are being talked about like Toad being persecuted, prosecuted for stealing a car seemed like the least of England's worries at this point. I don't know why they're not giving the other stories more oh, focus. No. So, for example, I'm just going to tell you, I read a few of the headlines that were there. I'm not going to read the whole story. Just here, here's some of the uh, deadlines or headlines. Two die in gunfight at doors of palace. A bomb was thrown at the Bulgarian king. That was one of them. Oh, my gosh. Another was... Man murdered on boat, and then there's like a little quote underneath it that says, He probed and removed from his neck one inch of rusty knife blade. Oh, oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. And again, this is all in plain sight. Obviously, it's it's happening so fast because the uh, newspapers are only on screen for like a second or two. So obviously, kids watching this like in movie theaters or on VHS probably aren't going to pause it, but it's just funny that it's there. Another one was... Girl's body exhumed. Murder case continues. Lightning bolt kills two, hurts several others. My possibly my favorite one is meteorite falls near baby. <laughs> they really, they really were banking on people not being able to read these as they went by and decided to put whatever they thought was funny. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's so good. Uh, Chinese pirates kill two Britons. And it's great. I actually tried to read the other side. I couldn't see this, but this is something that um, a lot of newspapers at the time are very guilty of, where they'll highlight, you know, two Britons or two Americans. Also, 17 other people from other countries were killed. You know, like they, <laughs> I don't I, I couldn't read that in the thing. I just thought maybe that was something there. And uh, the last one was a Belgian sink, a Belgian ship sinks in storm. Yeah, like the headlines there are insane. And yet like the big headline is Toad Steals Car. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's, oh, it's just something very simple. <laughs> it's oh, it's wonderful. One thing I want to talk about before we move on to uh, Ichabod is, and this is something that I found carried over for both films, is the ending is easily the highlight for me in both films. The section where Badger, Molly, Ratty and Toad infiltrate Toad Manor to steal back the uh, deed, definitely the highlight of the movie. It's the bit where it's most enjoyable. It's most like a cartoon. I can. It's the only bit that I can see kids really enjoying. I can't really see them get, going mad for the whole um, courtroom bit, which is just odd. 
Yeah, I feel as a kid I wouldn't have understood what was going on yeah. in the courtroom. It's just too quick, and but the end scene is so exciting and advent- all this action. and it I, holds I cannot forget Mission Impossible Toad. <laughs> Mission Impossible Toad. <laughs> yes, that's great. Or not Toad, it's uh, Molly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That bit's great, actually, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, just one thing I did forget and I want to bring it back to is uh, you are right what you say about the courtroom scene. I remember watching it as a kid and having no idea what was going on. Like, the nuances of that scene, they use a lot of very big words that would not, children would not understand. And they almost, they actually draw attention to that at the very start by the guy who is speaking really fast and, you know, saying a lot of jargon. And it's, it's to highlight the fact that courtroom language is not easily understood that's the joke but then they continue to do a lot of courtroom language so i'm not sure why that was there but one scene I want to talk about. Have you ever seen, there was a German expressionism film called M. Have you ever heard of it? I haven't. So this film, it's it's a great movie. I'd highly recommend it. It, it hasn't, it, it's aged really well. Basically, it's the story of a child murderer who's wandering the streets of, I think it's Berlin. I forget exactly where. Basically, he's going around killing children. And then the film ends when a, a mob has formed and they catch him. And they basically put him on a kind of vigilante trial. And the whole film is really interesting because it takes an indisputable villain, a child killer, and somehow manages to make you feel sympathy for him because, like... It, it's focusing on the idea of vigilante justice and mob mentality and how absolutely cruel and unthinking they can be. And you see these bits where like he's just gibber, a gibbering wreck towards the end and saying like, no, why are you treating this way? And like there's a slight suggestion that he might actually be innocent, even though evidence is not really in his favor. And there's this great moment towards the end where you can see the shadows of the mob closing in on him. And that's sort of reflected, I would say, in the moment where Toad is found guilty. And you can see uh, the judge is hammering on the gavel. And all you can see are like shadows of people like up against him. And it reminded me of that. It's because it's such a great movie and such a great scene in M. I really like that bit. Mm, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I, I think a lot of this film hits better for adults yes. than children, I guess. Yeah. And it's funny because it's not for adults, really. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's such a simplistic story. Well, is it, though? That's the thing. Because as we said, like, there's all the central messages are so garbled that it's kind of hard to say. Yeah, so finally, just before we move on to Ichabod, yeah, the final scene. I love this scene. It's the thing that I always remember when I thought back in this movie because it's much more drawn out than in the book because basically they just say, we went in and it's funny they go in in the book and the four people just beat up all the weasels that's the entire bit like they don't go in steal the deed and go back uh, get back out again they go in beat up every weasel in the house and say right we've taken back toad manor it's basically like helm's deep via disney <laughs> i mean i guess then it, it is kind of better that they have switched it to we are regaining the deed for the house so that we lawfully own this and we're not just going to take it by brute force yeah 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 exactly but um i just want to give like a compliment that like there's a really tense scene in that 
as you said, the uh, Mission Impossible Moly, which is or Mo- Moly Impossible. I don't know what you want to call it, but that's that's a really good scene because they build tension up to this moment so well. Because you have the entire bit where they're approaching the manor from outside on the boats, and then they're sneaking in, and like everything's really quiet. And brilliantly, they cut it to the weasel guard who at the same time while they're climbing the stairs and trying to get the deed he's getting slowly closer and closer to discovering that they've come in really great stuff like it's really dramatic and really well put together that section i would say oh for sure and even um the lead up to entering the manor Mm. i feel like they they create a lot of tension with them sneaking under the bridge and there's the guard up there um i guess that's the one that that starts creeping closer. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think they did really well with this scene, especially compared to the rest of the film. Yeah. Um, I agree. It was the most enjoyable. I feel like it's the most enjoyable for children. And it's the scene where we can actually kind of understand what they want us to understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, because you can kind of see Toad working with the other three as a team. And this is like undoubtedly the, the bit where things are going best for them. Even though like it's the, the most conflict, things ultimately go well and go right for them. And because he works with them, he co- he has that great moment at the end where he's like, oh, we didn't get the deed. And he's like, ah, actually, I got the deed. And he's like, oh, we worked as a team. Everything's great now. So, um, yeah. yeah, I think the Yeah, sen- and I guess it's the one scene where he's pulling his weight compared to the, the friends telling him you're doing things wrong or... Yeah. being disappointed in him you know he helps out he does all those paper airplanes i yes. think and yeah and that bit's key i think because uh the message i feel the film is trying to get across is that ultimately it is okay to have like a kind of rambunctious personality provided you do it in the context of being a responsible adult you know so clearly this is showing toad at his best this is him like being very frivolous that bit with the paper airplanes is really really good and it's like him it perfectly plays to his character he's being really frivolous he's being having lots of fun even though this is like a kind of life-threatening moment but he's still being himself he's like hey come on guys catch this bit but he's helping so he's being himself but contributing and this is him at his best Uh, Obviously, the bit at the very end of the film where he flies by and breaks a bit of the roof, this is him reverting a little bit back. And I think the lesson there is this isn't a resolution. It's like, oh, he's reverted a bit. But remember, he has the potential to be an upstanding gentleman and work together with the rest of us English Britons. So, so yeah, um, I think we've talked about this uh, enough. So I want to move on to the next film, The uh, Adventures of Ichabod which was also retitled as The Headless Horseman when it was released individually on VHS. If we could but journey back to that remote period in American history when the city of Manhattan was but a market town, we would discover in the bosom of one of those spacious coves which indent the shores of the Hudson, the little village of Tarrytown. And just beyond, nestled deep in the low rolling hills, a sequestered glen. It's a quiet, peaceful place and yet somehow foreboding this one um it was always one that i felt i'd seen but i don't think i actually had i i feel the same way except when i was watching it there is one moment where i it suddenly something clicked in my head that i've definitely seen this before okay 
we'll get to it, but I, there's this iconic moment that I was like, no, I've seen this movie. Okay. Yeah. So th this is the classic story of the Headless Horseman. Um, for those who don't know, basically Ichabod Crane, he's kind of this fancy dandy of a person who comes into the town of Sleepy Hollow, which is just outside a place called Tarrytown, which I believe is a real place. I'll have to check that later. I'll, I'll add a little note around here to say if it is or not. So not only does Tarrytown exist, but Sleepy Hollow itself is actually a real place. And on top of that, it's actually the place where the author, Washington Irving, is buried. The more you know. Um, but basically he comes in and he puts a lot of focus on his appearance, on like well-spoken language, and he seems to be absolutely obsessed with eating, uh, to the point that he steals a lot of food from people here, which is a little bit problematic, we'll come back to that. And uh, the central plot is, he falls in love with a woman named Katrina Von Tassel. Now Katrina is the unofficial fiancé of the town, uh, how would you describe Brom Bones in this? <laughs> He's like the Gaston of their town. I was going to say that. I didn't want to say it there and then, but you're right. He is Gaston in this. He is Gaston in this thing, except I think we're supposed to like him, which is really interesting. <laughs> but yeah, he is he is seen as like the Gaston of the town. He's like very handsome. He's the strongest man there. He's kind of like the problem solver, but he also likes the odd joke. Anyway, he is unofficially engaged. He's kind of like courting Katrina. But Ichabod Crane kind of falls for her in a very materialistic kind of way because he has this whole section where he's daydreaming about the farm that she will eventually inherit. And he's like, oh, that could be me inheriting that farm. So he starts to court her as well. And he and Brom Bones become rivals. Essentially, Ichabod is one-upping Brom Bones in every sense because Katrina, in a very interesting character quirk, seems to be using Ichabod to kind of encourage Brom to try a little bit harder for her affections. So he seems to be winning at every turn. You know, he's a better dancer. He seems to be wooing her quite a lot. Everybody seems to love Ichabod Crane. But then at the Halloween party that they are both invited to at the Von Tassel farm, Brom Bones learns that Ichabod is very superstitious. So he tells the story of the Headless Horseman, which basically terrifies Ichabod to his core. And kind of the central premise, the main selling point of this movie is, again, the end, which is the highlight, when Ichabod Crane is traveling back home through Sleepy Hollow, and he starts to get very tense and scared of, like, the random noises and things that he can see. And that's when the Headless Horseman appears. He chases him to the bridge, which apparently, if you cross the bridge, the Headless Horseman kind of gets deterred and will go back. He manages to cross the bridge, but the Headless Horseman throws his head in inverted commas at him and then Ichabod disappears uh it's kind of unknown what happens to him it's kind of left a little ambiguous and Brom Bones and Katrina ultimately get married so what did you think of this story in, in and when I say this story I want to specify I mean Disney's interpretation of this story um I so I, I thought I would enjoy it more mm -hmm. but really the first half of this story is very problematic in my eyes and I did not enjoy quite a few things <laughs> but the ending of it which is uh, where the horseman shows up is the part that suddenly something clicked in my memory that I've definitely seen this as a kid and it definitely terrified me and I think that part is so 
iconic and I guess memorable since I remembered it. So it's it kind of an odd movie where there's this bizarre beginning controversial thing and then such an epic really I I would argue really strong ending. It really is. It's it's better than I remembered. Again, like I want to highlight the fact that it's really strange and like thematically satisfying that both films have really strong endings whereas like the previous bits are kind of so-so but they both finish on strong points in terms of like all the films that i've talked about on uh this podcast this would probably be the strongest horror theme because it is a ghost story it's a ghost story hands down but before we get on to the ending i think we should talk about the more problematic elements the one that I want to talk about the most, I, just because it, it, it strikes me as so non-PC and it's such a flip and throwaway moment, the way the, quote, unattractive girl is treated at the dance is absolutely horrific. Oh, gosh, that the, the, the cute lady who has no one to dance with. Yeah. And Brom Bones uses her to, well, at first doesn't want to dance with her and then uses her to... I guess make Katrina jealous or I guess that's what he's trying to do. I think it's implied he's trying to switch dance partners so he's trying to like switch switch the uh, oh, girl with uh, Katrina so that he can dance with her but oh my god the way this is treated and handled is absolutely terrible and in direct contrast with modern Disney films now because it shows her like in a really sad moment there's a brief scene where it, the camera just cuts like brown bones is just looking around the party and we see this girl sitting alone on a bench looking really sad just twiddling her thumbs and it's it's genuinely you're looking at it, it's like oh that's sad and then a joke is made at her expense because you know yeah. she looks back at brown bones kind of hopeful it's like oh do you want to dance with me and he just goes like he just kind of flinches and go oh god and it's like what the hell was that like you would never do that but again different times this was 1949 when physical uh, attributes were held in very high regard obviously and we can see that with katrina despite being like kind of deceptive is clearly like the most popular girl in town you know so although it speaking of katrina her song oh, God, yeah. uh, to introduce her <laughs> was so offensive. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think it's a good word for it. Just also very inappropriate for a children's film. Some of the language they're saying, you know, you can't go very far with Katrina, but you could go farther with other women, I think is something they yeah. say. <laughs> you can do more with Margaret or Helena. Or Anne, or Angelina But Katrina will kiss and run To her romances fun With always another one to start <laughs> And it's, it's just so... And the way she's designed as well, you know, she's got the skinny little waist and... She's got cleavage and huge boobs, and it's just so <laughs> <laughs> strange for children. Yeah, it's 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 really bizarre, and um, I don't like the way she's depicted. But there's some aspects to her character that I like. I like how she isn't she, she has agency, which is really nice. 
you don't often get that in a lot of Disney films where like she is playing the two men against each other. I don't I don't really like the fact that her entire motivation is to get married. That kind of sucks. But at least, you know, she's working towards getting what she wants. Like she she's not going to just settle. She is going to be like, no, if you want to like marry me, you've got to work for it. You have to make me happy. So that is something, I guess. But yeah, it's no, it's... I I do agree. Um, it's strange. It's more so like the way I feel like the way the film wants us to see Katrina is very different from how they've actually created the character. Yes, and I feel like we're supposed to see her as kind of this. I don't know. She's playing around with men, and she won't really commit to anyone, and that's mm. kind of her. She's hard to get. I guess is the phrase they may have used. Yes, yeah, but yeah. she's really calculated yes i guess and so she's not really this person they're singing about right right and it's 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 very interesting because this is around a time when the way women are viewed is being very slightly contested not very contested but slightly contested it's around the point that women in films are kind of oh hey we're people too but they say it in a really like hushed voice like we're people too don't don't forget like so um it's interesting that she's She's got this level of agency, but I think the film is trying to show that this is not something to aspire to. This is not the way you should be, because there's one moment in particular where I think she comes across in a very negative light. It's the moment where Ichabod first introduces himself to her, and, you know, Brom Bones is in the background, and she kind of looks at Ichabod. At first, she's kind of like, oh, whatever, but then she's like, oh. Brom, he isn't really working hard enough for me. Maybe I will, you know, act like I'm interested. And the way she looks back at Brom, it's kind of, I don't know how else to say this, I'm sorry, but she looks kind of bitchy. She looks back at him and she's kind of like, hmm, okay, here we go. And she's drawn in such a way that you're not supposed to like her in that moment. I think that kind of carries across. The only way that you could say, this is very much a film for men, I would say. This is not for women, this cartoon, because it's all about men trying to marry the beautiful girl. And there's nothing really in it for women, I would say. Yeah, there definitely isn't, because we're not supposed to be want to be Katrina, but we are also not supposed to want to be the poor woman at the dance. So there isn't really any... I guess they're just, like, ignoring girls in the equation there is no lesson for you or no nothing to aspire here <laughs> yeah exactly yeah i think that's the case like so it's it's really unfortunate um but that that's how it be unfortunately yeah. <laughs> ichabod is a character i want to talk about because i do think he and brom bones have a very very interesting dichotomy because while similarly women aren't, aren't really supposed to aspire to be uh you know, like Katrina, I don't really think the men are supposed to aspire to be either Ichabod or Brom either. Like, if anyone you're supposed to aspire to, it would probably be Brom. But then it's also kind of depicted that he's sort of the antagonist. It's really confusing. Yeah, because he is making fun of Ichabod in the beginning. Hmm. And because he's kind of this, to use the phrase again, Gaston character you know, with his big muscles and he's kind of showing off. He's the typical in a Disney film person we're supposed to the bad like not the bad guy, but the the mean macho man. Yes, of. yes, yes. Absolutely. 
you are very much right about the, him being a kind of Gaston character. And I'm just, I'm looking at um, pictures of him now. And it's one thing I find really interesting is just the way he's drawn to make him somewhat more likable. So whereas Gaston had, interestingly, very striking cheekbones, which weirdly enough, makes him seem kind of cruel like he's got that strong chin thing and it's like yeah it's not great no one's got us well cleft in his chin like gaston the way his teeth are drawn gaston's teeth are drawn in such a way that make him look a little bit feral which is really interesting probably the most important factor with gaston is his eyes so they are drawn in a light blue shade and light blue typically is usually seen as kind of an evil shade of color like when you see a character with light blue eyes they're usually a bad person Brom, on the other hand, just has very simple white and black eyes, white with black pupils. And there, and he's also got a button nose, whereas Gaston has a pointed nose. So he's got little subtle parts to his animation and drawing style that make you kind of want to relate to him. But at the same time, just weird moments. Like he's got that bit where um, he's staring after Ichabod and he's like, he literally twists a horseshoe because he's like, oh, I'm going to like strangle him. And Again, it's a weird moment where it's saying, obviously, you shouldn't resort to physical violence, but also he's kind of depicted semi-sympathetically. Like, he gets the girl at the end. That's the thing. Like, he gets the girl. So it's like, it's kind of depicted as a happy ending, but also not really. Yeah, and apart from the what he does to that woman at the dance, he doesn't do that many, I guess, villainous things or bad things. And I found myself when we were watching it just wondering why, am I supposed to not like Brom? Am I supposed to like him? Am I supposed to like Ichabod? Like, who am I supposed to be rooting for? And they make it kind of unclear, which is an interesting choice. Yes, it really, really is. Um, yeah, because uh, one thing that I always found myself thinking, and this is in the story of uh, The Headless Horseman written by uh Washington Irving, he sort of implies that the headless horseman chasing Ichabod at the end might be Brom Bones in disguise trying to scare him. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's and it's interesting because there isn't really much to suggest that in this. In fact, one way they almost directly contradict that is there's a moment where Ichabod and the headless horse when he's running away from the headless horseman, there's a moment where He's literally on the headless horseman's horse and like he stares directly down his neck hole, basically. And like you can hear laughter coming back up from the neck hole. And that kind of pretty strongly implies that it couldn't be Brahm, that it must be the headless horseman, like an actual ghost character. But what I like about this story and what I've always liked about that the entire tale of the headless horseman is the focus the focus obviously is on the ghost story, but like the strongest theme is ambiguity here because you don't really know what's going on in this story. You don't know how much is true, how much isn't. And the way they play with that ambiguity is really good in the book. And I would argue pretty good in this too. So one thing I wanted to ask you about, you might know this better than I would. When we're watching this thing, uh, this uh, entirety film, the books from England, the UK, like, you know, literary heroes, I recognized every single one of them. But the American ones, I only recognized, like, I think two out of five. So when he's, I, I think I have it written down here. I just want you to tell me if you recognize these characters. And you probably will because you're better read than I am. <laughs> so, yeah, they say Paul Bunyan I knew and Johnny Appleseed I knew. But the other were 
Pecos Bill, Black Bart, oh, Davy Crockett I knew as well, and Daniel Boone. I don't know the other ones. I don't know if maybe American audiences would know. Maybe. But, yeah, I've only heard of uh, the same ones that you have, really. And even then, like, I don't really know them that well. Like, I know the names. Like, Paul Bunyan, I primarily know Paul Bunyan as the giant statue in, like, It you know part two you know that like oh yeah that's that's primarily how i know him. i kind of have it in my head that he was like some pioneer and he was quite good at chopping wood <laughs> he's a i think there's a story isn't he like a giant lumberjack yeah so i looked this up yeah. afterwards and there's loads of story like there's no kind of set story about him it's more like there's lots of folk tales about paul bunyan and his amazing feats of strength yeah, and I think he appears in a lot of children's cartoons mm. made in America and made in Canada, possibly. I, rem- I remember seeing images of him or, like, him somehow being mentioned in, like, ch- like children's TV shows. Mm, mm, mm. So, but I'm not sure if maybe in America he's more yeah. um, prevalent. It's interesting because maybe these were written around the time and they thought... And it's, it's interesting because, like, the... The English ones, the ones that uh, Basil Rathbone talks about, they're all really famous, have aged really well. And, you know, they were just straight on the mark. Like he mentions Robin Hood, King Arthur, Becky Sharp, which is the only one I was a bit unsure about. She's from Vanity Fair. I didn't know that one. Sherlock Holmes and Oliver Twist. Like they're all with the, I mean, Vanity Fair is a classic, but maybe Becky Sharp isn't very well known. But all the other ones are like extremely well known, like figures figure literary giants basically yeah i would argue the the english ones are more famous than the the ones like the paul bunyan ones yeah yeah and just oh incidentally side note uh there's a bit uh where basil rathbone says sherlock holmes perhaps and like he adds an odd bit of emphasis and the reason for this is basil rathbone was most well known for playing sherlock holmes on tv and i just that was just a little side note that i quite liked Uh, i see but um so the american ones the reason i bring this up is i looked all these people up and quite a lot of them were real people they weren't like literary creations and i think that's interesting because they're mixed in with people who like you know mythical characters like maybe there's like legendary status that kind of thing so basically the lines between uh, fiction and non-fiction are somewhat blurred here when he's talking about all these you know figures of literature and that's interesting here because again they're playing with ambiguity you're saying like what's real and what's not and the great thing about this is they play with this in on so many levels the headless horseman there are tales and myths about the Headless Horseman before Washington Irving actually wrote about him. But then, obviously, Washington Irving wrote about it, and he starts playing with the idea, well, what's real and what's not within the context of the story? So it gets a little bit meta here, because like first you have the oral tradition of the Headless Horseman, like, was he real or wasn't he real? And then you have a story about the Headless Horseman, and within that context, you're saying, in this story, is he real, is he not? And now in this film, you know, a third degree removed, we're like, this is an adaptation of a book of an oral tradition. And even within the film, we're like, was the Headless Horseman real or was he not? It's fascinating, I personally feel. (laughs) That is fascinating, especially because in the film, they also bring in the oral tradition of Brom telling the story about the horseman and then he appears and then it is he real is he not Mm. even though we are seeing him appear from the oral yes summoning i guess we could say Mm. and like 
the bit at the end that used to frustrate me, but now I think is absolute brilliance, is there's a bit towards the end where they say, some people say that Ichabod is, you know, married to a wealthy widow, like somewhere on the other side. And like, they show that on screen. And I remember when I was younger, I was like, oh, well, if they're showing it, that means it's real. Now, rumors persisted that Ichabod was still alive, married to a wealthy widow in a distant county. But then I think about it, I'm like, well, none of this is real. It's a movie. Like, so, yeah, they're like, <laughs> you, you can show that. You can depict it as real because none of this is real. Like, you, there are no rules with animation because anything you show is not real. So I love that because, like, they're really toying with, like, what you perceive to be reality and what's not reality. Yeah, and that's why we can find so many moments that aren't supposed to be scary in cartoons scary. Yes. Because they're unreal and that makes it... Or or they're portraying something unreal as real and it makes it kind of uncanny. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I do want to talk about the ending because like, that's my favourite part. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit more just about Ichabod as a character because bloody hell just problematic as hell <laughs> like um what did you think of the bit where he's daydreaming about katrina and thinking about owning the farm ah oh, katrina my love who can resist your grace your child and who can resist your father's farm <laughs> boy what a setup there's gold in their makers and that ain't hey it's so Firstly, it's so bizarre because he's having this strange daydream in the schoolhouse. Yes. At his desk. Mm. <laughs> and I, I suppose this, the children aren't there. We don't know. They don't show them. But he's he's having this weird, not even a daydream, like a like a sexual fantasy. Almost. Yes. So this is what it feels like. <laughs> it is. It is. It's depicted in the exact same way someone would have like a sexual fantasy about someone. But like it just it starts off him thinking of Katrina, like say, oh yeah, I could marry you, whatever. But it just it keeps flitting from Katrina to like money, food. Oh, you and know? the farm. Yeah. yeah, and he's having the same because he he makes these strange facial expressions and he's constantly moving around mm. and I I don't know as if he's like turned on thinking about this, which is so strange. Yeah, and then he's thinking about, oh, the farm. I could have the farm. Yeah. Katrina, the farm. Katrina, the farm. <laughs> it's so weird. Like, he seems... This is essentially, like, a story about a love triangle, but it's really weird that you could almost argue that Ichabod Crane has zero interest in the actual romance involved. <laughs> he's constantly... Like, food is his number one obsession. I would argue not even money. It's just food. He's obsessed with food in this. Really? I feel like he's obsessed with women. I, I, that's how I saw it I would say it's less women and more what women can provide because uh, yeah. they have that moment near the start where one of the random school students is drawing like a very unflattering picture of Ichabod Crane and he's about to beat him which is weird but um, then you can see him uh, Ichabod looks down at the kids which would have been known as a tuck box back then and you can just see like it's overflowing with food so he sees that and he's like oh well, I'm not going to beat you then. He just kind of pats him on the head. And then it cuts to him being invited back to that student's house to eat at a really hearty dinner with the mother. And he kisses the mother or he blows her a kiss or something like that. Yes. strange. (laughs) And again, this is the thing. Like, I think very much like Katrina, he's playing people so that he can constantly be fed. Because 
there's so much emphasis on him eating food in this that I don't think it could be ignored. When he first arrives, he steals, um, what was it he steals? He steals something from someone. He basically, like, there's a woman carrying something. I forget what it is, like, some kind of food. And he literally does this kind of little twirl as if he's waltzing with her. And then he continues walking and he pulls out, like, let's say it's a, an apple or something like that, whatever it was she was carrying. And she's like, oh, so he literally does a dance. Like, he literally engages in a kind of traditionally romantic uh, activity with a girl and comes out of it with the reward, which is food and zero commitment. And that's kind of a, a metaphor for every single interaction he has with women because he's doing it all. Like that moment where um, he's at the women's choir and like they're all singing and he's like doing this really seductive singing. Again, Bing Crosby, such a great person to have in this moment because he's got that very intimate style of singing. And he's just going, bo -bo 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 -bo. and like the women are just crooning over him. And they get to the point where they literally can't handle it anymore and they just collapse on the floor. And he just walks over and starts eating their food as soon as they do that. Very true, very true. I wonder if Ichabod Crane, because we don't know, I, I think we don't know where he came from before he arrived in the town or did they mm. i think they say they don't know where he came from yeah i think it's just implied he just wanders in and like nobody knows where he came from yeah so. and he's such a slender scarecrow like figure maybe he's maybe he needs the food i don't know what the um what they were trying to do with that you've actually put your finger on something that that is worth talking about like just the way he looks is bizarre because Considering the role he's in, it would make more sense for him to be a handsome character, but they take pains to emphasize he is not attractive by any means. Like, he's got a really weak chin, he's got big ears, he's really slender, massive feet. Nothing about him says, you know, lover boy, playboy, or anything like that. He's just a really unattractive guy who takes care of himself. And I think that's that's probably what's key here because he does look after his appearance. We have a couple of times where you see him looking in the mirror or he's well-dressed or whatever. So again, the word dandy is literally describing him perfectly because everything about his character, he is a dandy. He looks after himself. He puts a lot of um, emphasis on the arts and like language and that kind of thing. He's a school teacher. He's like a choir master. He's a dandy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I just love that word, so <laughs> <laughs> No, it's fine. But yeah, there's that there's a long scene actually where he's getting ready for the dance mm. and he's doing skincare and fixing his hair and looking in the mirror and I guess that's contrasted with Brom who's just He's just supposedly there. big muscle man. Like <laughs> It's actually a funny thing about that where when Brom shows up at that point, he's wearing Again, it looks almost exactly like Gaston's typical clothes. Like he's got the red jacket and everything and like the big boots. He just, it, it's, the contrast between him and Gaston is just uncanny, really. I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he was a lot of their inspiration when they created Gaston for Beauty and the Beast later on. It could be. Actually, to bring, as we're talking about Beauty and the Beast, something I noticed about the beginning, when Ichabod is going through the town and everybody's singing about him. Hmm. And we introduce Brom, and there's the part where he dances with that woman and takes the apple. It feels like the same scene as Beauty and the Beast, when Belle is walking through the town and everyone is singing about her. And so I had that thought when I was watching it, like, did they like this scene and decide we should put this again in Beauty and the Beast? Because it feels very similar. And it'd be interesting to kind of watch those scenes side by side and see how many... Uh, coincidences there are yeah but that it really reminded me of 
that, that the whole town is singing about him as he walks through the town. Yeah, and he's even reading a book just like Belle is, like while she's going through. God, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Yeah, that. Oh my God, the similarities are really, really uncanny. But again, it's it's really interesting. Whereas Beauty and the Beast, right, really had their finger on the on like the pulse here because they knew what they were doing when they did that. Because oh yeah, society sees Belle as kind of a freak because you know she's reading books all the time and having free thoughts, danger. And uh, Gaston, who is like this very traditional character, is like you know oh, I'm the provider, the hunter, all that kind of thing, and therefore super popular. But he's the villain in that flash like backwards come out like 50 years and we can see that this exact same scene and that's just seen as normal there's no issues there whatsoever like you know oh yeah brown bones and they even narrate it in such a way as if to like kind of explain it away as like oh he liked pranks and all that kind of thing but there was no bad in him like you know like he's like boys will be boys you know it literally yeah. has that air of like you know oh he's fine he's no problem there Their self-appointed leader one brown bones was a burly roistering blade always ready for a fight or a problem Brom was much given to madcap pranks and practical jokes. Still, there was no malice in his mischief. Indeed, with his waggish humor and prodigious strength, Brom Bones was quite the hero of all the country. And Ichabod Crane, he's he's the interesting one, I think, because um, we don't really know what to make of him. You know, he's he's just an odd duck, basically. <laughs> he's just coming in, <laughs> and he's. I think our reaction is supposed to be the same as the people's. That like, you know, there's no harm. He's not doing any harm, but he's also just odd. He's just an odd character. And kind of similar to Mr. Toad in a way that we do, we're not supposed to know. And that might be a strength of these films. The fact that when they were being depicted, they're showing these fantastic characters that are kind of supposed to be very unlike your typical character that you would see. But you know, we're supposed to be like, wow, like this is a completely new person, like very, like they literally, originally this was posited as uh, when this was coupled with The Gremlins, the original working title for the, this collection of films was to, supposed to be Three Amazing Characters. Not a very original name, but very, very apt because these are very, very original, amazing characters. And it's quite interesting that even now, years later, we don't really know what to make of them. For sure, and I think it's interesting because when I, when I started watching these films, it they seem it seems strange to put Mr. Toad with Ichabod Crane, but now now that you mention like the these amazing characters, it makes more sense why these two films that seem so different from each other would be packaged together. Yeah. It's really it's it's it is surprising because yeah like you I said like, what where is the thematic similarities here whatsoever but actually there are quite a few because in both films I think the way you fit into society is seen as quite important and in both films it's kind of suggested that you are allowed to have a bit of a radical crazy personality so long as you do it within the rules of the society you're in and we can see how toad kind of gets away with that because he shows that he can work together whereas ichabod kind of doesn't he doesn't really get away with uh, and i think that's because that might be because of the focus that he has on obtaining material like he's shown as greedy 
that's that's like his, yeah. his big flaw he's shown as a greedy person like he's not really contributing he is but he's doing it for material gain and for that reason he's punished and kind of like cast out or at least suggested to be cast out yeah i i can definitely see that because if mr toad is more he it's not for material gain well i guess he wants the motor car but it's more so for fun just for the thrill that's how he lives yeah 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 um and again because he provided he doesn't like you know destroy the good name of toad which apparently reflects on the other animals as well i'm not really sure on the ins and outs of that but apparently it does he's fine he can go ahead and do that but ichabod crane he is directly impacting what is seen as the most popular character in you know sleepy hollow brom bones and that doesn't that doesn't hold that doesn't work for him so because that's the case he has to be expelled because he is upsetting the uh, ecos- ecosystem he's he's upsetting the ecosystem that is like sleepy hollow so for that reason pfft, cast out i'm aware that we- we've been talking for a long time now so i just very quickly want to talk about the ending of uh, sleepy hollow i don't think there's going to be too much to say about it because universally we seem to agree it's just really really good it's excellent actually the um the bit where Ichabod Crane is riding through the woods reminded me an awful lot of Snow White when she's going through the woods in that and I think that might be a callback maybe it could be um yeah in Snow White there's that part where she's walking through the woods and there's all those eyes Mm -hmm. in the darkness and I can see how this would mimic that yeah yeah it's it's a, another great moment much like wind in the willows it builds tension so well because there's about i would say f- almost five minutes of just him going through the forest not saying anything just being scared of things before the headless horseman eventually shows up and i really appreciate that because i think the temptation would be this is a film for kids let's just show them the headless horseman as soon as we can but no they build to it like they it's earned when the headless horseman shows up it's a real kind of oh finally moment like you can feel that moment of like oh god the monster is here like it's it's effective obviously when the horseman shows up it's actually less scary than when he's not there yeah well and they they go through um it's kind of the there's the big trees and it's kind of more visually scary and then it's sound and it, it they kind of build on that right it's at first it's it's kind of quiet and then we hear the hoof beats and Ichabod is like losing it. He's so terrified. Yeah. <laughs> and then it turns out, oh, it's just the cattails. Yeah, yeah. Hitting on the log. And then, yeah, but then we're suddenly shocked by the headless horseman. Yes. And actually, it's um, it's something that Peter Pan did as well, where uh, the, the idea of something is a lot more terrifying than the actual like thing itself like so we talked a lot in the previous one about how captain hook would he had this really terrifying like facade like the image of captain hook or the idea of captain hook was far more terrifying than captain hook himself who was also ironically a bit of a dandy in that in that film whereas in this one it's it's the same situation where you could almost split this ending but it's two halves the bit when the headless horseman isn't there and the bit where he is and when he's not there it's really tense it's quite scary it's probably the scariest part of the entire film and when he does show up it is it's exciting 
and a little bit scary because i mean he he does have a sword and he is like hacking away but a lot of that tension is alleviated by the fact that like funny things are happening at this point like there's a bit where he's all uh ichabod crane has almost crossed the bridge but then uh his horse gets turned around and he's running back towards the headless horseman they accidentally are sitting on the same course at one stage it's it's fairly comical yeah for sure um i would say though the the fear leads up until we see the horseman and then mm. it diminishes because there's that amazing shot. It's almost like a freeze frame yes. of the, when the horseman appears and the sky is all like pink and red behind him. I love that. And we see his whole horse and him with his sword and everything. And it, it's a very memorable, iconic moment. And there's this crazy music yeah, after that is all the the comedy that you were mentioning, which is a great moment. It's really fun to to watch that whole the whole part where they're on the horses going around and around the mm. tree. It, it's just this, these creative ways of them switching the horses, and it's more fun than just a chase that we could have had. Yes, which yes. would have been there would have been no tension. I I guess probably some comedy, but it's a really creative way to have a horse chase. Yeah, yeah. And um, I really like the the way the headless horseman is drawn as well. I think, I think they've. This is a very slight thing. Tell me if you agree. So as I as I mentioned before in the wind and the willows, uh, the colors black and red are typically used to describe something that's really antagonistic, usually kind of scary. It's something that actually popped up in Cinderella as well, where we myself and my guest that time Emma we talked about one of the scariest moments in that film is when the king's guards are chasing the pumpkin carriage thing and again they're depicted as just pure black with like flashes of red and they look quite scary which is ironic considering it's the king's guards they're well in today's context maybe we could argue that <laughs> the guards can be considered quite scary but anyway um interestingly in this they take a slightly different approach because the headless horseman he is depicted almost entirely in black but he has as you mentioned before the sky is kind of a pink like not not like girly girly pink but kind of a i don't even know what color you used to describe it's kind of a reddish pink yeah it's like a i don't know like a sunset color it's it's an interesting choice yeah it's 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 not as scary as it could be and i think that might be deliberate maybe maybe it may who knows maybe they thought it might be too scary for children if it was if they did it up or yeah i'm looking at it now and the funny thing about it is um so i'm just looking at like a random picture of the headless horseman and the funny thing is the scariest part about the headless horseman is his horse his horse seems to be the scariest aspect of it because if you look it, like you can feel free to have a look at this yourself but if you look at a picture of the headless horseman uh the h horseman himself looks a little bit goofy but the horse first of all like he's got red eyes which in itself is like always kind of scary but he's like he's snarling that's the thing like the horse himself is snarling and i think traditionally when you're when you're talking about animation the scariest thing you can ever do is depict a scary face like faces are always used like to the best effect when you want to scare someone so the headless horseman is almost immediately at a disadvantage because he can't he doesn't have a face well he does he carries it but it's not scary like i mean it's not scary it's just a jack-o-lantern yeah exactly we don't know that at the start but even if we did like it just even if we didn't it just it's not scary because it just doesn't look scary so but again they handle this very well with 
they don't linger too long. They linger on them for a little bit at the start so you can appreciate it, but every subsequent time after that, they don't linger too on. They actually use clever editing methods to make sure that we don't linger too much on him and realize it's not him we're really scared of. It's just like the potential of what could happen. So the pacing is done really well. Yeah, for sure. And they make him so larger than life too, with like mm. the the as you mentioned, the scary horse. He's got this giant cape that's also pink. Mm. Um or pink in some scenes anyway. Mm. And so I guess that's how they add to his scariness. Yeah, like actually that's a really good point now, actually, because you're right, he they do depict him in such a way that he is overwhelming. Everything about him is overwhelming. Like the cape is kind of key here because if you look at a picture of him and just minus the cape, he really doesn't look threatening at all. Like, uh, just like if you kind of mentally like subtract the cape uh, from the equation, he just looks like a nothing character. But the cape, it's it it kind of envelops the whole scene. Like it, it, when it's when he's on screen, like he's filling up the entire scene. And even the first time we see him, like that moment you said, that's really iconic. Even the way the camera moves, like it goes from below and kind of zooms upwards at him as if to say like he's towering over you, like he's a looming threat. Yeah, for sure. It feels like there's this massive thing following you. It's not just a man on a horse. It's this large being that's going to kind of overtake you in some way. Yeah. So before we finish up and talk about like just the themes that you unify these films, the last thing I want to say is how good is the Headless Horseman song that they sing just beforehand? Because I... Oh, it's so fun. I actually... I, it's, it's something that I hadn't thought of. I thought like, oh yeah, I remember there being song. I guess it's pretty good. But like, there's three songs in this segment. There's Ichabod Crane, which is fine. There's the Katrina song, which is pretty meh, not great. Even, even if you take aside the fact that it's really problematic, that song, it's a kind of fine song. But the Headless Horseman song that um, Brom Bones is singing is just great. When spooks have a midnight jamboree, they break it up with English glee. Ghosts are bad, but the one that's cursed is the Headless Horseman. He's the worst. That's why he's heard on Halloween night. But when he goes a jogging across the land, holding his noggin in his hand, demons take one look and groan in the hip road for parts unknown. It's so fun. It's catchy. It's it's almost in danger of overshadowing the finale itself because it's so good and i would argue it has one of the scariest moments in the entire thing so there's one frame well, not one frame but one like cut where we see brom bones he has a sword and he's turning he's looking directly at the screen and he's kind of grinning in a really sinister way and it's definitely definitely one of like the most unsettling moments like I'll see if I can send it to you just so you know which bit I'm talking about. But uh, it's just really good because, again, this is about building oh, tension. I see it. It's terrifying, his face. Yeah, right? Exactly. Because as well as the fact that everything about this is, like, really, really scary. Because, like, the fact that his eyebrows are, like, formed in such a way that, like, he looks like he's up to something. His mouth turns huge. That's something that I found really funny. Like, he already has a really big jaw, but, like, uh, he's got the... It almost looks like it's dislocated when he's kind of, like, grinning, like, at the at the viewer. And it's just, oof, it's creepy. Yeah, and the way he's holding the knife is so... Very suggestive. It's, uh, suggestive, but also very... I, 
I guess it's very strange to the eye because of the way his fingers are under the blade and it it's very threatening. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I've always found it to be the case where um, I, I remember saying this to someone before that if the thing that is usually scary about horror films and even non-horror films it isn't so much if something is scary is if other characters are scared by something that's usually what uh, instills fear in me so like if for example like the movie alien just to take for a random example like the alien itself is terrifying but what really makes that terrifying film is the performances of the other characters who are like showing how terrified they are of the alien like if that wasn't there the alien wouldn't seem threatening and this always holds true for me in any film and i think the fact that ichabod becomes a gibbering wreck in like the face of this song is what really aids like the finale and what makes it so you know quite quite almost i would go so far as to say it kind of intense for a child to watch like i wouldn't be surprised if some kids were scared of this movie when when they're watching it as children i definitely think i was when now that i'm re-watching it i feel like there's some sort of childhood trauma based on this <laughs> movie um it definitely probably would have given me a sleepless night as a child well, just but one last question before we, we kind of wrap up. Like, what would you say was the scariest moment of this segment? Like, the, the one standout moment that really went, oh, that kind of struck you. I have to say it's the moment where the horseman appears. I feel like it's just the, the lead up to it, the music when we see that moment. Mm. And just his presence is so aggressive and large and... It felt a little jarring, I guess. Yeah. And you know what? One thing we didn't even talk about is the laugh that he has is brilliant. It's so threatening. Like, it's really, it's the textbook evil laugh, but it's so good in this. Like, it's so commanding and, like, overwhelming. And, again, coupled with everything, like, else that we've talked about, it's really, really well done. Okay. So, we've gone over this in great detail. Lots lot of stuff to talk about here, but, like, Let's just, before we finish up, how do we think these tie together, like, and, you know, what in particular stands out to us as being the most horrific elements? Would you like to... Sure, yeah, I can start. I think definitely what we talked about, about these being two larger-than-life characters, or very, not, I guess not larger-than-life, but very different characters or very unique characters is something that brings these two films together. And then also, I guess, this theme of should you conform? I, I don't know if it's really asking should you conform to your town or your society, but I guess showing the perils of if you don't mm. act the way everybody expects you to act. Yes, I think you're right there. I think um, with these films, what both of them are like trying to do are show you that there are consequences to acting out. They're not necessarily saying you can't, but they're showing that if you do, bad shit's going to happen. Like you might end up in jail or you might get your head chopped off. Who's to say? <laughs> um, yeah, so thinking back when I was watching this, uh, again, I primarily I can only talk to uh, The Wind in the Willows because that's the one I saw when I was a kid. The bit that jumped out at me as being the most terrifying was actually, 
It actually wasn't the drowning scene. That was more disturbing watching it this time around. But I'd say the most disturbing bit I found for some reason was, again, it was the prison escape. So, again, not necessarily that drowning bit, but, again, it was the intensity of the prison escape. So, I guess, and that bit still confuses me because the way it's done in this film is it's implied that you shouldn't be escaping. <laughs> you know, it's very, very odd. Uh, what about you in terms of the headless horseman? What was oh you sorry you already said that the the appearance of the headless horseman would have been like the scariest bit and that makes a lot more sense to me because again the entire build up is that and I guess the message that that says would be um, I mean so much of it is down to like superstition really we didn't really even talk that much about superstition the superstitious nature of Ichabod Crane. Um, yeah, we didn't. Um, there's the... I don't know if we want to go into it, but it, the, it's strange that they just show it suddenly right before the, the song about him being superstitious. Well, actually, there is a moment in the introduction where... There's two moments, actually, now that I think about it. There's a bit where he's about to walk under a ladder, and then he stops and goes around the ladder. Uh, and there's another bit where a black cat crosses his path, and he uses an umbrella to kind of push it back to where it was so that it doesn't cross his path so we do know from the start that he is superstitious but it's not dwelt upon until the very end and yeah and we have the part where he he throws the salt over his shoulder which yeah yeah, yeah. i don't know if everybody knows about that superstition or not. I, yeah i don't know it's something that i remember learning relatively late in life it's something i learned i think when i was a teenager uh, i remember seeing the first time i saw it my aunt did it i don't know it's like why are you wasting salt? <laughs> my mom has always done it, so I do it. Okay. I'm a throw salt over my left shoulder person. But I know that when other people have seen me do it, they are like, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting that they put it in here. Yeah. I um, Personally, I don't think they're making much commentary in terms of superstition. I think they're just, in a very broad sense examining the concept of superstition and again i do love the way they do it as i mentioned like the triple fold way they kind of use meta a, a little bit of meta almost unconsciously this was this was almost this was just when postmodernism was becoming a concept and almost unintentionally i think they're tapping into a kind of postmodern sensibility with the way they're depicting the headless horseman but i don't think it's deliberate i don't think it was a conscious effort but it is there I think I think that almost wraps it up unless there's anything else you want to say about either of them. Um no, I think we've pretty much discussed everything. This is a unique experience this set of movies I feel like. It's it doesn't feel like watching Disney. It feels like something of its own, which I hmm. is one of the best parts about it, I guess, is that it's a unique experience. Hmm, yeah, the fact that these aren't some of Disney's most famous characters kind of divorces them a little bit from Disney as a whole. And that does make them interesting because, you know, you can see why why are these characters not so rever as revered as, for example, Peter Pan or Cinderella? Um, where, where did they fail where the others succeeded? And I, it's hard to say. Like, I mean, there are still some people who quite, like, like these guys i think um ichabod crane and the headless horseman definitely is more popular and this might just be because the headless horseman has such mythical status that everybody knows at least a version of the headless horseman 
and the wind in the willows it's less so i think the story is a little less accessible i think it's definitely aged a lot more than the headless horseman both have aged in quite negative ways and i think that might be because of the but it's interesting that while they have aged other films that we've talked about previously on this have also aged but they've stuck with it and uh, they've managed to like remain in public consciousness and that might just be because the bits that haven't aged have such a strong impact like for example cinderella is kind of a rags to riches story which kind of speaks to walt disney becoming a global powerhouse and uh, peter pan is very much about like retaining a sense of like childhood wonder and that's very much speaks to like walt disney's mission statement you know because they're trying they're doing so much of this for children these films are talking about you know toe the line stay stay in your place yeah we don't really need that as much in our modern yeah absolutely not like for that reason in particular i think wind in the willows hasn't maintained its popularity because that's really the only string to its bow whereas ichabod crane manages to kind of retain a little bit more popularity because as well as that they're also talking about the nature of myth ambiguity and superstition and that's something that we can still hold on to and say this is a universal thing so don't try to figure out a plan you can't reason with a headless man man i'm getting out of here okay so before we finish up Saxon, I have a few more questions for you. So first of all, I wanted to ask you, what is your favorite Disney film? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I have to think. I, maybe this is, because I feel like I should choose an older film. Oh no, go for it. Go with your gut. I love Tangled. Oh, interesting. That's a good one. Yeah. Um. I I mean, it came out when I was an adult, but I think, I guess because I grew up with the older, you know, Snow White, Cinderella, and Tangled is so beautifully animated, and I think that's one of the things I love the most about it. Hmm. And she's a very fun Disney princess. That's true. You know, she's a little silly. She has kind of a, a sillier male love interest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's that's probably my favorite. That's a really good pick. I actually personally love Tango. I actually, I, I'm one of the very, very few people who still enjoys Let It Go, despite the fact it's been extremely overplayed. I do love that song. But with that aside, I would consider Tangled to be the better film than Frozen, like in almost every respect. I love Tangled. Um, again, down to the character, the sense of humor. It's such a funny film. Tangled is one of the most hilarious Disney films like ever released. And again, the music, the animation, so much of it is great. Do you remember what the first Disney film you ever watched was? I think it would have been Pocahontas. Oh, wow. Which You're I know we so don't speak young. about very much. You're so young. Oh, my God. I saw that in the cinema. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Um, I think that must have been the first one because I remember of the Disney films, I loved that one as a kid. Mm-hmm which I know is a very problematic movie now. But as a kid, I thought it was just the best thing ever. I mean, it's got incredible music. I love Pocahontas for that. But, you know, it's okay. I think I 
genuinely strongly believe it's okay to divorce certain themes and problematic parts of a movie from the movie itself it's like one of my favorites is the little mermaid and obviously that's an extremely problematic film for obvious reasons that we'll talk about in later episodes and now moving into horror can you remember i think i know this can i guess what your favorite horror movie is because i think i remember okay is it creep no oh okay um although that's a fair guess because my favorite horror film hadn't come out yet Oh, okay. When I was still living in Japan. Interesting. Yes. Um, my favorite now is Hereditary. Hereditary. Interesting. That had come out, hadn't it? I don't think so. Had it already come out? Maybe it might not have been in uh, Canada. Because I remember like, I watched it in the cinema like literally a month before coming to Japan. So oh, might... maybe I just hadn't seen it yet. Uh, yeah, but great movie. Yeah. Excellent That's choice. That's my absolute favorite. I love that movie so much. Hereditary is an excellent. I think Hereditary unfortunately got slightly overshadowed by Midsummer, which I kind it's of not as good. <laughs> I would agree with you actually. Like uh, Midsummer has very strong themes, but I think as a movie, I think Hereditary is the better movie. I I really really enjoyed it, and my God, how terrifying is it? Like um... oh, it's yeah, it's so terrifying. Because I that's actually the first horror film I saw in the theater by myself. Oh wow, okay. Um, I like to go by myself now. Me too. I do as well. Yeah, it's just a different experience, and I think because I've seen so many horror films, I often don't get scared by them. Mm -hmm. But since it was the first time alone in the theater, and I went to a matinee, so. I was one of the only people in the theater, so I was quite scared watching it, and so it was such a a great experience, and so I think that's that also plays into why it's my favorite, but yeah. I love that. That's excellent. And this is no spoilers for people listening. Don't worry, I'm not going to spoil this, but in a very spoiler-sensitive way, how good is the moment where the sun wakes up and you realize the thing that's there? <laughs> Mom? Dad? Oh gosh. That bit That's is so, so good, good yeah. isn't it? Oh my god, yeah. it's 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 done so well. It's done so yeah. well because there's almost no trickery there. The, the guy just seems to be aware of how your eyes work and when you're going to realize the thing. And it's like, yeah. oh my God, incredible. That's a, that's a perfect scene. That's yeah. a perfect scene. So good, so good. And my last question for you, what is the first horror film you remember watching? Oh, I think we talked about this, Paranormal Activity. You're right, sorry, we did. Yeah, I'm sorry that's fine. That. Yes, yes, okay. <laughs> uh, again, another great film. And actually very similar in terms of like, well, in terms of that scene in particular, because there's so many bits where you just see things or notice things. And a lot of people always tell me about Paranormal Activity. After they see it, they can't sleep with a leg hanging out of their uh, bed. Oh, never. <laughs> I, I, I've never, I've always been okay with that. Like it's, it's one thing that just never really affected me. It's, it's like uh, the whole thing with Jaws. I like say, oh, I could, couldn't go back in the water. I'm pretty sure the day I saw Jaws, I went to the beach. Like, so <laughs> it's just, yeah, so, some things don't affect me. Um, but other things in really weird ways like misery was a really weird one like um oh, yeah interesting I, for the two weeks after i saw misery i had to lock my bedroom door because i was afraid someone was going to come in and then after i did that i realized one day oh crap what if someone's already in here and no one can get in to help me <laughs> so then i had to keep it unlocked it was like it was a whole thing 
Okay, so Saxon, thank you so much for everything that you've brought to this. This has been an absolutely amazing talk, and I learned some stuff about this film that I or these films that I hadn't thought of at all beforehand. The comparison with Beauty and the Beast has really got me thinking about it, and I'm really looking forward to doing that one now, so I can think back on that. Before we let you go, can you tell our listeners uh, where can they find you, or uh, what other things are you working on, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, sure. Um, really, I'm only available on Instagram. I'm at Saxon's Books. I post a lot of the things I'm reading, and um, I'm working on my book, which I don't know when that will come into existence or if it will come into existence but hopefully one day you will see a book from me <laughs> you were one of the most dedicated writers i've ever seen because i remember even while you were here in japan with this entirely new culture you would spend like your saturday mornings at a cafe writing books i remember and even though it's something i would also pertain to i just i just don't have i don't have your level of motivation and like i applaud you for that so well done <laughs> thank you thank you so for any of our listeners feel free to follow it's saxon bishop wasn't it was that it or saxon books uh, saxon's books saxon's yeah. books um i do follow it as well it's great because you had one book that i really enjoyed it was like an orc cafe related book what was that called legends and lattes that was a really interesting one i looked that up afterwards because it looked hilarious so um yeah you'll probably get some great book recommendations if you follow saxon and maybe you'll get like first glimpse at her new book which we'll say will be pending pending, <laughs> pending. okay so thank you very much saxon for coming on and thank you everyone for listening we will see you next time mm-hmm.